You're listening to the IQVIA podcast, where we discuss ways to drive innovation in healthcare. Hello, I'm Pratik Bhatnagar, Global Public Health Director at IQVIA. The world marked World Cancer Day on February 4th, and I'm really delighted to welcome Eric Grant from the UICC uh, with us here to discuss confronting cancer care divide in LMICs. Welcome, uh, Eric. Thank you very much. Great to be with you. Eric, um, the last few years have seen a lot of interest in infectious diseases. And um, we know that a lot of the attention um, in the last few years has been on on COVID and understanding um, how we prepare for future pandemics. What would be really interesting to understand from you is in this context, what are the unique challenges um, that you uh, have faced in addressing the issue of cancer care in low-income countries? Yeah, thank you. It's it's a very important question, especially since um, the IARC, the International Agency for Research on Cancer, the the research arm of WHO, recently released some global uh, cancer estimates uh, just before World Cancer Day showing that um, the projected increase in cancer cases is going to be predominantly in lower middle income countries where they're already carrying 70% of uh, cancer related deaths. Uh, we can get to why in a moment. Um, and of course, so these, these cancer cases are gonna be take, you know, rising in, in countries least equipped to deal with them. So it's really important to address the underlying causes of, the, of this gap. Now, the rise in themselves can be attributed to um, lifestyle changes, more Western diet, uh, alcohol and tobacco consumption. Some of these risk factors actually could, you know, with government intervention can be, could prevent a significant portion of cancers. Uh, but um, so yeah, low and middle income countries have been quite successful in addressing infectious disease. I mean, it, it's, it is an issue in a lot of countries still, of course, but now we are seeing this rise of non-communicable diseases and, and particularly cancer. Uh, as I said, the burden, the, the number of cancer deaths is, is heavily concentrated in low and middle income countries. In high income countries, we've seen considerable success in, in treating cancer, but also because we're detecting it earlier when it's e- a lot of them are easier to treat. I'm thinking of breast cancer, cervical cancer, colorectal cancer. And this is part of the WHO's global strategy uh, to eliminate cervical cancers, to ensure that women are screened for cervical cancer at certain ages. Now, for a number of reasons in low and middle income countries, uh, people are being detected late. They are either unable to they're, either the facilities don't exist, there's no screening program, or they, people don't know about the importance about, of screening. They can't access the services even if they exist because either they live too far or they have to take time off work or they have to take care of their children. So all these reasons mean that by the time the cancer is detected, it is extremely, it's much harder to treat. And I think one other thing I'd say about also that, you know, especially when we're talking about breast cancer uh, or cervical, women's cancer for the most part, there are still a lot of countries, sadly, around the world where women are not uh, the main deciders of their own health. Um, it, can be, it can go as far as, you know, the woman's not allowed to consult without her husband or father's uh, approval. He doesn't want to spend the money. 
or they say it's not, you know, necessary until again uh, that cancer is in stage three or four. I, you know, I think you, I think you articulated it really well. Um, the the dual burden of NCDs and infectious diseases is essentially exacerbated by the associated health system challenges, but also the human centric challenges that you described. Um, I think our listeners will be really interested to understand how um, does the UICC work to address these issues through its members and through its partners? Well, I think you, you, you said something very important there. It's through the, the members and partners. I, you know, members, a lot of them are patient organizations, about 40% patient organizations. We work very closely with civil society and civil society organizations play an, a crucial role in any type of intervention implementation of a cancer strategy they know the landscape they know the burden they know you know the the patients and and they're they're an essential partner in any successful um outreach to try and close this care gap so there's several ways that as i mentioned before sometimes it's just a question of health literacy what are the risk factors um and you know fighting misinformation fighting also the the idea that cancer is necessarily a death sentence um in cases where there's treatment available people should come in and screen for it because again if they find a cancer if it's early they can be treated successfully and this information has to get out um there are other types of misinformation we could do a whole podcast on that unfortunately um so there's that the risk factors then there's the as i said health literacy knowing what you can be screened for when and who should do it um and then there is obviously the actually being able to get those services to the people who need them so uicc has um a system of grants it's provided grants to organizations on the ground who uh, do awareness campaigns or um, work to to improve the earlier detection of breast cancer or and others. Um, it has online learning opportunities uh, for members to share knowledge. Uh, it's it's one of our core missions is the knowledge sharing. Uh, it has technical fellowships where um, early career professionals can visit host organizations and come home with the training and experience and transfer that expertise back to their home institution. So that's sort of the, the setup we have. Um, and, you know, I'm happy to go into to detail with any of these if you wish. I think what you, what you described is um, not only a multi-pronged approach uh, to addressing uh, the issue, but that this approach has to be activated at multiple levels. I mean, you talked about the need for literacy, the need for uh, particularly on, on the on, on the disease, uh, but also health communications and the kinds of partnerships you need um, to have a quality, um, not only quality care, but also in detection. Um, are there any kinds of partnerships across these areas that stand out for you in particular as being effective in the way uh, that you envision the future uh, for cancer care in LMICs? Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing to say is that um, obviously that when we, we talk about bringing care uh, or improving access and availability of cancer services in low resource settings, the, the question of resources and financing is, is obvious, the obvious question. Uh, I think there 
you know, just to name three countries, Jordan with the King Hussein Center for Cancer, you know, it's brought incredible cancer care to the region. Uh, Pakistan has as a top quality cancer uh, network um, and services. And Rwanda is is on track to be one of the, among the first countries to eliminate cervical cancer. So there are there are options available. WHO has a list of cost efficient best buys and the political will is obviously um, essential. Um, I think another thing we're looking at are people, you know, integrated approaches. Uh, we talk about infectious diseases, COVID. There's certain ways of integrating the services where if a woman comes in for HIV checkup, we know that women with HIV have a six times higher chance of developing cervical cancer. There's an option there to screen the women for cancer if they're uh, if they're already coming in for other services. So those are other ways of of dealing with it. Um, just on the, I think one partnership I'd like to highlight, I think uh, the, the UIC is essential in, in developing, and this is something we haven't touched upon, it's, it's, it's access to medicines. Um, it, it's a very complex problem. People, you know, there are countries where people are dying of cancers that could be treated, but they just don't have the access to the, the medicines that would cure them. And, and that, that shouldn't happen. Uh, but it's not just a question of throwing the medicines into the country. Um, there has to be a whole health infrastructure set up to actually receive those, you know, in terms of supply chain, monitoring, quality control, diagnostics capabilities, so that those medicines reach the right patients at the right time. And to do so, UIC um, helped found now with 40 other partners from NGOs, private sector, uh, international organization, civil society. The uh, it's called the Access to Oncology Medicine, the ATOM Coalition, uh, in 2022, which is its its mission is to improve the availability of essential cancer medicines. Those medicines that are on WHO's list uh, of medicines that are considered essential to to treating cancer, different kinds of cancer. Something that you said um, earlier made me think about. Um, the role of um, of government and also uh, the role of the private sector. I think in the examples you were giving um, earlier, uh, you referred to the, the the critical aspect of of, of government policy uh, potentially in this. How do you manage that continuum of um, stakeholders? And and is there a uh, a formula for this in your experience, or is this is, is this an art as well as a science? Getting I don't know that formula. I mean, we have we have our, our our partners who often fund specific you know areas of cancer and that and that allow us to provide grants to organizations. Uh, one example is um, Pfizer that supported the seeding progress and resources for the cancer community metastatic breast cancer, or known as Spark, which was to bring in uh, treatment for advanced stage breast cancer in LMICs. Um, so that's that's one way. Another is we participated in what's called the Success Project. It was the um, secondary. It, it's to improve secondary uh, prevention of of cancer. Um, HPV screening. Uh, so HPV, obviously, the human papillomavirus that is the primary cause of cervical cancer. Um, in four project countries, the UIC was involved in Guatemala, Philippines, Cote d'Ivoire, and Burkina Faso, and. Um, that was that's a project that was uh, I think it's still ongoing. They're funded by Unitaid and uh, led by Expertise France, which UIC delivered in collaboration with JPEGO. 
So those are two. Um, um, when it comes to to working with governments, uh, UICC also well, it works. It it has an advocacy department which works at the international level with WHO and other health organizations. Uh, we uh, helped found the International Cancer Control Partnership, which is a depository of national cancer control plans, and that is obviously uh, essential. I mean, you have you have to start with the data. Obviously, a country has to know what its cancer burden is, what are the predominant types of cancer, who is, what are the populations that are affected the most, and only then, of course, can it develop a strategic plan to address it and allocate the resources to do so, and that's called the National Cancer Control Plan, and we work with governments to, to help develop those. Um, and the the other aspect is uh, the Cancer Advocates Program within UIC, which works with organizations advocating at the national level also, so international, national, um, uh, you know, requests or sort of advocacy is aligned, the messaging, but each country has a different cancer burden and specific challenges and very specific resources to deal with them. So that's why national advocacy is obviously essential and very different for each country. And then the final thing I'd say is we also help establish what's called the, it's the McCabe Center for Law and Cancer in Australia, because obviously legislation is crucial. And some of the things that have happened in legislation is not necessarily those that we think about, but um, it could be simply providing uh, funding for parents who have to care for a child who has cancer so that they can take time off work. Because if a parent can't take time off work, they can't, they can't help their, their child, they, they don't necessarily then complete the treatment. So there are all these things that are not necessarily just in diagnostic screening and treatment that we don't think about, they're actually absolutely essential to, to ensuring that someone mm -hmm. gets screened and if they have cancer, completes their treatment. Eric, a few moments ago, you talked about um, the ability to un better understand the cancer burden, and certainly that speaks to uh, certain challenges in, in the data uh, to be able to understand the burden better. Uh, are there any unique uh, and particular uh, challenges that um, that you see and have experienced in the context of um, uh, understanding better the cancer burden in LMS, LMICs? I think that uh, the need for robust cancer registries, the need for uh, specific data is is crucial. Um, and I think that is that is unfortunately missing in, in a lot of countries and where we're trying to concentrate our work because uh, it's only then that, you know, otherwise you're shooting in the dark. You, you need to have an idea of which cancers are affecting the population, at what rate, uh, which populations, and then how can I best allocate my resources in what order to address that. Now, of course, to have data, you need diagnostics. So you do need mm -hmm. to have at least a basic uh, diagnostic facility so that the cancer is actually diagnosed. Uh, I mean, in some countries that are improving their their um, cancer control, um, the diagnostic, the, the, the collection of data, the treatment, uh, are seeing a rapid increase in cases. But part of that is actually due to the fact that they're able to, that there, there are actually cases being recorded that weren't being recorded before. So it may not be the case that there's actually a huge increase in the cases. There may be, but that may just be the fact that we know about them and we didn't before. So it's it's a big gap and uh, it's something I think a, a lot of people are, are, are working on, fortunately.
Great. What roles have you seen patient advocacy groups play in addressing these gaps? Uh, and how do you envision them evolving um, in the future? I think, I mean, patient advocacy groups are often and generally started or driven by people who've had cancer or at least experienced cancer. Um, perhaps they've lost a family member or they themselves have had cancer. So they're the f they know firsthand what could be improved in that journey and what is missing. Um, and they're an incredible voice because they can share that experience. So it can be either women who've had uh, breast cervical cancer encouraging other women to get the vaccination, to get checked, to, to explain to them that, you know, well, I actually survived because I found it early type of thing. So they're the, it, there's nothing more powerful than the voice of, of somebody who's experienced the disease. And that, that's equally true with the general public to sensitize them to the importance of screening and getting tested uh, or to understanding that they're also a living proof that it doesn't have to be a, a death sentence, but also for policymakers to make them understand this, the human element to, to cancer. Because I think, I mean, obviously, you know, the aspect when we talk about cost uh, of cancer services, you have to put that in the balance, of course, of the cost of not doing anything. And that's not just the, the tragic loss of, of life or people suffering. There's also a whole aspect to it that, that is, I mean, if we want to talk in pure financial terms, the loss of productivity, the the, the loss of um, community cohesion, uh, a, a parent who's battling cancer, it may not be able to bring in the money. They can, you know, a lot of families face financial catastrophe because of cancer treatment. Um, Eric, I think you bring um, a very important point here that cancer impacts the social fabric of communities and patient groups help to bring that dimension uh, alive in in the conversation. Oh, I just sorry. wanted to add because yes, you're absolutely right. But the uh, we do have. I just wanted to cite a couple of examples of of real, real. I mean, not just awareness raising, but real change at the the policy level um, that they can do. And you know, we have a few members around the world who who have been able to to ensure that governments enact policies that directly improve the lives of patients. Uh, one of them is, is, for instance, ensuring that certain care associated with children's cancer is covered by um, the insurance scheme, the national insurance scheme, because obviously what you see, and along with members around the world and other institutions, supports the drive for universal health coverage. Uh, cancer can be, cancer services can be available. They need to be affordable and available to all, and ensuring that these basic cancer services are included in universal health coverage schemes, uh, patient groups have played a, a, around the world have played an essential role in, in, in expanding the coverage of cancer services through national health schemes. Thanks, Eric. Uh, I did want to ask you a final question. On World Cancer Day, what was the UICC's call to action? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, thank you. So the, the this was the third and final year of the Close the Care Gap campaign, uh, which obviously the first year, I mean, obviously, obviously shed the light on the inequities we see in cancer. On the website under the Close the Care Gap campaign theme, there they list eight, what we identify as eight significant barriers to care. Uh, they're what we often refer to as called the social determinants of health for a lot of parts. In other words, they're where someone's born, uh, they're 
economic and social environment, uh, the cultural environment, where they live, how far they live from health centers, their age, their race, their ethnicity, their gender, gender norms, you know, uh, how we act as men, women, um, other all these have an effect on our access to care and some of them can result in not receiving the same type or not experiencing the same access to care as, as others. Uh, I'll just cite one example. I mean, and it can be within countries, you know, we've been speaking about high and, and low middle income countries disparities, but a lot of these can be within geographical. We've, we've spoken about in the US, we know that, that women of color have, have higher rates of breast cancer than, than white women. Um, and so we shed a light on that and tried to raise awareness about it. And in this last year, we are asking governments to address the issues. And we, the call to action on the website lists nine recommendations that are adaptable to different contexts that ideally we would, we would love to see countries around the world implement. Now, of course, countries are different places in their, uh, how they address health and health inequities and some of these, and many countries have implemented quite a few of these recommendations in form, some form or another. So it's not a question of pointing fingers, it's just sort of where we'd love to see governments go in general. Eric, thank you very much for joining us and for all your insights today. Uh, and I'm sure our listeners found these insights extremely valuable in understanding uh, the critical gaps in cancer care across uh, LMICs. And I'd like to thank all uh, our listeners here for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much. If I may add, just the call to action is still available to sign on the website. Uh, that signature or that sort of the name that someone puts in will go directly to the health minister in their country uh, joining the call to action. Excellent. Thank you, Eric. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the IQVIA podcast. Learn more about how we help our customers and partners accelerate innovation in healthcare at IQVIA.com.